This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Welcome to the show. I am um, your host, John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. And it's carried exclusively on American Family Radio on Saturdays in the afternoon at 6 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Central, and so on and so forth from there. If you're relatively new to the show and you'd like to uh, explore who I am, what I do, you can go to my website at John Rosemond, J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D.com where you'll find my bio, upcoming speaking schedule. I'm pretty full for the fall at this point, booking now in the winter and spring of 2019. Speak in churches, Christian schools, and even some secular environments uh, all over the country. On my website, you'll also find my bookstore, last five syndicated newspaper columns. My column appears in about 250 newspapers across the uh, United States, and my bookstore, uh, where you'll find my latest book, which was written with my pastor, Dr. Scott Gleason, senior pastor at Tabernacle Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church in New Bern, North Carolina. The book is titled Getting to Heaven. And people are somewhat puzzled by that. What's a parenting guy doing writing a book that is uh, fundamentally theological in nature. And the answer is that shortly after I accepted Christ into my life, um, became a believer, became a follower, dedicated my life and work to him, I began uh, reading mostly theological stuff. And the feeling gradually grew that um, I really wanted to write uh, something theological. Moved to New Bern, North Carolina four years ago. Shortly thereafter, began attending Tabernacle Baptist Church. And um, I want to tell you that Dr. Scott Gleason, you, you can go to Tabernacle Baptist Church's website and listen to some of his sermons. He is one of the best expository preachers in the United States. And I say that having heard some of the best expository preachers in the United States. And he's just an amazing public speaker. And so I approached him and asked him if he was interested in writing, said he was, and I proposed that we write a book called Getting to Heaven. I, I'm one of these authors who I start with a, a, a title and I build a concept from there. And it took us about a year to write the book. Uh, it's very uh, heavy theologically, heavy scripturally. And it's uh, gotten some extremely good reviews from uh, people who are well-known in the Christian community. So as uh, listeners to this show already know, I am a psychologist. Uh, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board, as I always say, the North Carolina Psychology Board regrets the day they ever gave me a license because I go around the country and I tell people that uh, psychology has caused more problems for the American child, parent, mother, father, marriage, family, school, and culture 
than psychologists uh, even know how to solve. I don't believe psychologists properly understand human nature. And uh, along those lines, I believe that a proper understanding of human nature is obtained only through Scripture. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit this, uh, this afternoon about uh, psychological thinking. That's what I call it, referring to the tendency among parents of the last 50 years or so to attribute bad behavior on the part of a child to so-called issues that are thought to be causing emotional tension of one sort or another in the child. And this emotional tension uh, supposedly expresses itself in the form of various aberrant, inappropriate behaviors. And uh, these uh, inappropriate behaviors are really the child's means of calling for help, drawing attention to the real problem, which is uh, not the behavior, but some underlying uh, psychological, emotional cause. And the uh, furthermore, the psychological, emotional cause, according to most psychologists and um, standard psychological theory, usually lies with the parents of the child. So the, the parents are doing something wrong that is uh, causing the child emotional tension, which again is expressing itself in the form of whatever, disobedience, disrespect, tantrums, uh, phobias, anxieties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is precisely what my graduate school professors taught, that uh, misbehavior was nothing more than a symptom of such tension, and that for that reason, disciplining the behavior, in other words, punishing the child for misbehaving, would only make matters worse. It would confuse the child. As this bogus psychological theory oozed into popular culture, this imaginary notion went in contemporary terms viral. Testament to that is the fact that during my private practice years, the typical parents who solicited my advice concerning an ill-behaved child seemed to think that knowing the hypothetical source of the problem in question was equivalent to solving it, and that discovering said source required a highly trained psychologist, me. It, uh, it actually pains me, folks, to admit that for more than a few years, I believed I was actually capable of deep diving into a child's psyche and bringing up such buried treasures or toxic sludge, whatever the case may be. It, it began to dawn on me in the early 1980s that I was pulling this stuff out of thin air, that there was no empirical means by which my speculations concerning the real reason why the child in question was misbehaving could be verified. Therefore, these speculations on my part were, in fact, delusional. Yes, delusional. I further realized that these delusions absolved ill-behaved children of responsibility for their various antisocial outbursts and projected said responsibility on the parents. By such pseudo-intellectual alchemy, the misbehaving child was transformed from a perpetrator into a victim. 
deserving not of discipline, but of great understanding and sympathy. An example is the single mother who recently sought my help regarding a young teenage boy who was behaving very disrespectfully toward her, calling her names and so on and so forth, threatening her. She believed her son was angry at her for divorcing his father and just hap- who, who the father just happened to be verbally abusive. And the mother wanted to know how she could help the boy. This was her question. How can I help my son resolve his anger issues? It didn't help that another therapist had told mom that her son's verbal abuse was indicative of depression. Psychobabble knows no limits, folks. The inevitable consequence to a parent of psychological thinking is what I call disciplinary paralysis. And as was the case, in fact, with the mother in this example, parents who engage in psychological thinking are unable to discipline firmly because they they don't know where the source of the problem lies. They believe, in fact, that they are to blame for their children's misbehavior. They believe, therefore, that they are the parties in need of correction. It's as if they went to graduate school with me. And so the problem in question, whatever it might be, just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. The more this mother became convinced that her son's disrespect of her was due to anger issues pertaining to her and the father's divorce, the worse the disrespect became because the more her disciplinary paralysis grew, thus giving the child permission to disrespect her. In in all of these cases where parents are thinking psychologically, the problem just keeps on getting worse. A disrespectful teen becomes more disrespectful. An anxious five-year-old who demands that her parents cater to her anxieties becomes more anxious and demanding. A 10-year-old who throws tantrums becomes a completely out-of-control 13-year-old. All too often, these kids receive diagnoses of one sort or another, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar disorder of childhood, and on and on it goes, and wind up on medication. And by the way, none of these diagnoses can be verified empirically, and none of the medications used to treat, put the word in quotes, these phony constructs, reliably outperform placebos. So back to the aforementioned aforementioned single mom, when she stopped absolving her son of responsibility for his disrespect, stopped thinking he was a victim with anger issues, stopped her unwitting enabling, and responded to his abuse by confiscating all of his electronic gear, his smartphone, his tablet, his computer, his video game, and suspended all discretionary driving privileges until he was disrespect-free for two months solid. Guess what? After the shock wore off, his anger issues abruptly resolved, and he became the model of a dutiful son. Firm, loving authority is hard to beat. 
There is, in fact, no substitute for it. Firm, loving authority. So that's the first half of the show. I'll be back after this obligatory break, during which we will hear a message from American Family Radio or American Family Association. Stay tuned. I will be right back. Welcome back to the show. Um, your host, John Roseman, if you're just joining us, the show is called Because I Said So. And once again, it's carried exclusively on American Family Radio on Saturday afternoon, 6 o'clock Eastern Time, 5 o'clock Central, and so on and so forth from there. But if you happen to not pick up the show on Saturday afternoon for whatever reason, you can... Beginning the following Tuesday, two days later, in other words, uh, three days later, you can uh, go to my website, johnroseman.com, and uh, there will be a link on my website to the show, and uh, you can podcast it to yourself. So uh, you have no excuse for not listening to my show. So as my regular listeners know, I am down on my profession. I claim to be the thorn in the side of the mental health professions in America. My licensing board, the North Carolina Licensing Board, has unsuccessfully attempted to strip me of my credentials uh, on two occasions. Uh, You could call it two and a half. I've had to obtain the services of uh, very expensive attorneys. In one case, an attorney who had had argued before a, a First Amendment case before the, uh, the Supreme Court. Now, you know, in, in the legal world, once you argue before the Supreme Court, your fee per hour, it just skyrockets. And, um, but, it, you know, it was just necessary. Uh, my licensing board came after my license, not because I'd done anything inappropriate with a client, not because I had done anything unethical in the course of counseling someone, but because they didn't like what I said in my newspaper column. In uh, 2016, courtesy of uh, a libertarian law group out of Washington, D.C., called the Institute for Justice, I defeated the Kentucky Psychology Board's attempt to abridge my First Amendment rights in federal court in Kentucky. Yes, I am somewhat the bad boy of psychology, and I revel in the reputation. I enjoy, and I, I guess it's sinful of me to enjoy it, but I got, I got to tell you, I enjoy getting a rise out of uh, people in my profession with things that I say. They've never said I was wrong, by the way. They just say they don't like it. Anyway, this is sort of a story about psychology. It's a, it's a story about how professionals and professional parenting advice has just, you know, uh, caused parenting in America, which used to be done fairly commonsensically and calmly, has turned it into a train wreck. 
So just this morning, I'm, I'm strolling through my go-to grocery store, and I happened down the baby products aisle. I wasn't looking for baby products, but I just kind of happened down the aisle. And I spied these uh, packages of what are called toilet training pants. Toilet training pants featuring pictures of happy children, smiling, laughing, who looked at least three and a half years old, some as old as five. I mean, I stood there looking at these pictures and thinking, these kids are three, four, five years old. And the first question that came to my mind was, why would a five-year-old who is continuing to eliminate on himself be happy? Why would that cause the child to burst out laughing, to, to even smile? Think about that. Perhaps a spokesperson for the unnamed manufacturer of said diabolical apparel will answer that question for me. If it, and, you know, the question can be answered uh, if, if you are out there uh, by sending your response to radio at rosemond.com. This all got started in the mid 1950s. Well, it didn't get started in the 1950s. Let me uh, tell you something about toilet training in America. In the mid 1950s, a study done by researchers from Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and Princeton determined that close to 90% of 24 month old American children were accident free. In other words, were using the toilet reliably, successfully, were having no accidents. 90% of 24-month-old children accident-free and had been accident-free for at least one month. Folks, that means that 9 out of 10 children were completely toilet-trained by no later than 23 months in the mid-1950s. And then, in the 1960s, along came the Mr. Rogers of Pediatrics, that's what I call him, T. Barry Brazelton. Dr. Pediatrician T. Barry Brazelton of Boston Children's Hospital, professor at Harvard Medical School, who claimed without a shred of scientifically obtained evidence that the attempt to toilet train a child under the age of 24 months requires force, it's the word he used, and is therefore psychologically damaging. In addition, Brazelton fabricated a wholly fictitious set of 10 or so behavioral, quote, readiness signs, end quote, that he insisted needed to be present before toilet training is attempted. Mind you, the only readiness sign to which mothers in the pre-psychological parenting era, in other words, pre-1960s, paid attention to was their own readiness to stop changing and washing dirty diapers. Well, almost instantly, Brazelton's child-centered, that's what he called it, approach to toilet training became the gold standard in the pediatric community. And as pediatricians began advising mothers to hold off training until 30 to 36 months, that would be three years of age, lest they wreck psychological havoc on their children, a process that had taken three days to a week on average began taking months, even several years in some cases. Likewise, 
mothers went from being fairly nonchalant about the entire affair to being toilet training basket cases. The problem rapidly expanded to the point where some psychologists began specializing in toilet training. In Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, in the 1970s, a psychologist advertised an in-home toilet training service. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, said psychologist would come to someone's home for an exorbitant and outrageous amount of money and either toilet train the child in question or walk the parents through the process. And believe me, he was not alone in the United States of America in that regard. Books on how to toilet train began to proliferate. Mind you now, before T. Barry Brazelton threw his monkey wrench into toilet training, no one needed a book to do this. You just put a potty out or put a potty on the big potty, put a child's potty on the on the adult potty seat, and you took the child over there and you put him on it and you told him, uh, go to the bathroom in here from now on. You're not wearing diapers anymore. It was a very straightforward, authoritative approach that resulted in children being toilet trained in three to seven days. Uh, now books began to proliferate. I even wrote one in which I did nothing but describe how it was done before Brazelton threw said monkey wrench into the matter. After all, folks, where children are concerned, there's nothing new under the sun, despite propaganda to the contrary. Do parents need specialized professional training to properly teach children to feed themselves? No, they do not. Thankfully, in that regard, no one with capital letters after his or her name has ever claimed that improper spoon training will begin a child's descent into psychological pandemonium, even criminality. Perhaps it's only a matter of time. There must be a market there somewhere. After all, there are, in fact, several similarities between spoon training and toilet training. First, they both involve the digestive system. Yes, the principle is what goes in must come out. Second, they both involve messes. Toilet training, you know, child's going to have some accidents. Spoon training, child's going to get food all over his face, the tray in front of him, the floor, <laughs> you know, his hair. Third, Said messes have to be taken care of by parents, parents or nannies, as the case may be. Surely, someone smarter than myself can make a case for waiting to teach children to feed themselves until they are at least five, lest an emotional apocalypse ensue. Said someone, a Ph.D. psychologist, of course, could come up with Spoon training readiness signs, as in, child so shows no significant anxiety at being handed a small spoon covered in soft rubber. <laughs> then the recommendation, in other words, the psychologist in question, might make the recommendation that the child be allowed to handle and chew on a rubber-coated spoon for at least a week before training and self-feeding actually begins. That would, of course, be to 
allay any fears the child might have about this strange implement his parents have put in his hands. Within five years of this, we will have therapy and medication for self-feeding anxiety disorder. Yeah, I'm being a tad, but only a tad facetious. Nonetheless, history strongly suggests that if a childering problem doesn't exist, the professional community can be counted upon to remedy the situation. And that has been another exciting episode of Because I Said So with your host, me, heretic psychologist John Rosemond. Again, American Family Radio stations all across America, Saturday afternoon, 6 Eastern Time, and so on, or on the following Tuesday, a podcast through my website at johnrosman.com. God bless you all. God bless your families. Hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.